Ladies and gentlemen, to those among you who are easily frightened, we suggest you turn away now. To those of you who think they can take it, we say, welcome. Something's making me feel uneasy tonight. Can't stop looking behind me, walking in the moonlight. Don't know what's out of place, but I know it's not right. Richard, that was an excerpt from a song called Midnight by Northeast England singer-songwriter Steve Nielsen. I know we only played a clip, but if you were to listen to the whole thing, it tells the story of Elizabeth Bathory. I bet a lot of our listeners are familiar with the real-life person on which... Well, probably more than one movie has been based, but we're going to look at one of those today. And what is that? Well, that would be a little hammer movie from 1971 called Countess Dracula. You know, it's February. It's Valentine's Day. Love is in the air. I don't know that it necessarily works completely for me, but it just makes me think of women. So we have Countess Dracula. And who is her counterpart on the flip side of the horror coin. When you think of the two, the two big ones were it's Dracula and Frankenstein. So if we've got Countess Dracula, it's only fair that we do Lady Frankenstein. Also from 1971, you've got women in power in these films to one degree or another. And women who are ultimately punished for having that power. I was going to say, it, it doesn't always end well for, for our characters in these films. Countess Dracula coming from Hammer, Lady Frankenstein has been kind of run through the mill on the public domain circuit. I think it pops up with great regularity. It's a shame there wasn't a third movie like Widow Werewolf or something like that. Female werewolves were, I'm trying to think, well, She-Wolf of London. Yeah. Yeah, and clear up through Ginger Snaps. Yes, that's a little more recent. Anyway, we don't have it, and and we've only, you know, since it takes us 10 hours to talk about two movies, we're not going to add a third. Well, let's tell everyone who they have to blame for a a 10 hour podcast. I'm Jeff Owens from ClassicHorrors.club. And I'm Richard Chamberlain from MonsterMovieKid.wordpress.com. I will bang the gavel to get this meeting called to order. And, you know, we really don't have any feedback this time. However, since we just mentioned long podcasts, we did have one comment in our Facebook group that I'm not sure how to take. I, I think I'm going to purposely take it positively. Uh, I, I don't know the person who made it, but I'm going to assume they were making a joke, kind of being lighthearted like we sometimes are. When I introduced our last episode, I mentioned that it was long, but still not as long as The Towering Inferno was. And somebody commented, long podcasts are boring. Not sure how to take it, but I assume we are the exception to that rule. I I didn't see that comment. Maybe it was on the Classic Horrors Facebook page, but I definitely saw it. Okay. uh, Well. Chose uh, not to take offense to it. Well, I'm not taking offense to it. 
if said individual or other individuals are bored by the length, you can always hit that speed button and we can sound like the chipmunks and that can speed it through. You can break it up. And so it's not a long podcast. And like you said the other night, we are recording in a very short window from our last episode. Yes. So I'm sure people just haven't had time to collect their thoughts and contribute them, but we welcome them to do that. You can email us at classicwars.club at gmail.com. You can visit the aforementioned Facebook group page, the Classic Horrors Club podcast, like six of our new members have done. We have six new members to that Facebook group page, and we would like to welcome them verbally here today on the episode. We have John Serge Sketter, Michael Vitti, Scott Blaze, Richard Hart, Larry Cahill, and Jay Crimson. Welcome, everybody. We are glad to have you. And Richard, we did also have feedback again. Don't remember the person's name, but we pronounced his name correctly. Did you notice that? I did. I I took that that as a win. Yay. (laughs) So (laughs) if we did mispronounce anyone today, we, we do apologize for that. In lieu of any other old business, got to give my shout out to Jay and my mom, probably driving somewhere listening to this. They were a little bit impatient, wondering when the new episode was going to come out. We did have an extra week before our last episode came out, but they did enjoy it and still appreciate their interest and their willingness to take long car rides so that they can listen to the podcast. So hello, Jay. Hello, Mom. Hi, Jeff's mom. Hi, Jeff's brother. And hello to... Carla. There you go. Oh, you bet. I'll edit that. It, she might not like that sounding like an afterthought. <laughs> I will say up front, folks, no Star Trek references this week. I could not find any Star Trek references. I'm sorry. I feel like I'm letting people down, but fear not. We have multiple Doctor Who references. Ah, very good. You know, I'm glad we did that disaster episode. I have people at work that have been asking to listen to the podcast. They want me to direct them to it. And I'm a little hesitant, just the reason they know I have it is that when I was interviewing or when I did my little biography for the newsletter, you know, somehow mentioned Classic Horse. I mean, it's not that I'm ashamed of it or anything, but just I don't want them to think I'm a weirdo. (laughs) The disaster episode is is probably a really good one. Yeah, it's a little safer to direct people to. And I actually did that yesterday. I sat with someone while they found us on Apple podcast and subscribed. I said, hey, we got a new subscriber. Thank you. (laughs) Whether she ever listens, I don't know. We failed to mention the other way that people can contact us. And it is through a voicemail that you can leave at 616-649-2582. That is 616-649-CLUB. Nice. Nice. And then we also want to mention our YouTube channel. We do a companion show to this podcast. It has clips from this podcast, but visuals as well, lots of film clips, and a little bit of recording that we don't include on the podcast. So we invite you to go to YouTube. We are on YouTube at at Classic Horrors TV. Mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's the ugliest of them all? Mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's the fairest of them all? Devil woman! Mirror, mirror on the wall. Ah! Who's the most terrifying of them all? The 
Countess Dracula. was a countess young and fair with tender skin and flaxen hair oh countess how do you keep your looks what secrets in these ancient books the book what book the chapter on blood sacrifices please help me i don't know what's happened to me say lovely say it yes 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 i love you Don't you realize that you get uglier each time you get old? And you can't go on killing forever? Why not? That woman embodies all the virtues. Mistress, friend, and mother in one, does such a woman exist? <gasps> you know she knows. Lovers know how you cling to youth. Dare you tell them the dreadful truth? These walls could tell, but cannot speak of the sudden cry, the muffled shriek. Doby. Where is she? Look at me, Doby. Look at me. And what will your daughter say? She arrives tomorrow, and she'll find you. As young as she is? Hold me. No. Blood. Whose blood? Mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's the most terrifying of them all? The Countess Dracula. Julie! Have I changed so much? I don't know what's happened to me. Blood. Whose blood? Devil woman. When she accidentally cuts her chambermaid's face and blood splashes on her cheek, the elderly Countess Elizabeth discovers that her wrinkles are gone. Soon, she's bathing in the blood of virgins to pose as her beautiful daughter and using her womanly ways to manipulate the men in her life for personal gain. Countess Dracula was written by Jeremy Paul, directed by Peter Sasdy. It stars the voluptuous Ingrid Pitt, Nigel Green, Sandor Ellis, and surprisingly, and I do want to talk about this, Leslie Ann Down. I never realized that she was a, a hammer glamour. Running time is 93 minutes. It was released in the UK on January 31st, 1971, and in the US year and a half or so later, October 11th, 1972, by 20th Century Fox. Richard, I watched this on a Blu-ray from Synapse Films. How did you watch it? I actually watched this one on a, uh, I think a DVD. I'm trying to think now. I did not watch it in the last month because we had just seen this movie a couple months ago. It was very fresh in our minds. We watched it during October, during during Halloween. 
it is readily available. It's actually on Shutter right now. I do know, though, that this one's a little harder to find if you're trying to find it on Blu-ray and, and DVD because it's all out of print. So you have to, mm. yeah, the Synapse Films Blu-ray is out of print, but it does sell for less than 20 It was also part of the Midnight Movies DVD double features. It was paired with The Vampire Lovers, which would be a great double feature. Also out of print, also sells for less than 20 And it's also available to buy and rent on Amazon Prime. What did you think of it? I enjoyed this one. There was a lot of vampire films coming out from Hammer around this time. You know, there's everyone thinks, well, of course, Christopher Lee, Dracula. Definitely in the early 70s, we were getting variations on the vampire themes. There's the vampire lovers. There's vampire circus. What, Twins of Evil. Lust for a vampire. Lust for a vampire. This one... Calling it Dracula is a stretch. Well, calling it a vampire movie is a stretch. Is is a stretch as well, yes. It's a variation on the theme, but it's about as varied as you could possibly get. I think using the name Countess Dracula was clearly a marketing ploy because there is at no point in this film where there's any remote connection to, to Dracula. And the only mention of Countess Dracula comes at the very end of the film. And it's like attacked on in a voiceover or the crowd or something is, is cheering, is saying something about Countess Dracula. That's the only time we ever hear that reference. Of course, if you used a different name, it might not get people rushing to the theater. So using the name Countess Dracula was sure to get people in the theater. So yeah, pure marketing ploy by Hammer. And, you know, they've certainly been known to do that a time or two over the years uh, in their prime. Other than that, the movie, I think, stands on its own. If you don't think of the vampire lore, because it is kind of hard to take this one as a vampire flick. It has blood and it has a character getting revitalized because of the blood. But that's really about the extent of it, in my opinion. And it does have a piercing of a neck, but not by vampire fangs. Right. I'm prepared, Richard, to do a little history today. I am using as my resource Hammer's film Legacy from Quatermass to the Devil's Daughter by Wayne Kinsey, and there is a chapter on Countess Dracula. We mentioned based on a true story, and Elizabeth Bathory, if you look her up, just who is this person? She lived from 1560 to 1614, and the one-sentence description is she's a landowner and noblewoman who was accused of murdering dozens of women and girls. This book paints a little more vivid picture about Elizabeth. She was accused of many other atrocities, which included women being torn apart by hounds, frozen alive in the snow. This one makes me cringe. Having hot needles thrust beneath their fingernails. (laughs) And suspending terrified naked girls overhead in a narrow iron cage furnished with pointing nails turned inward. While the Countess showered, not just bathed, she showered in their blood. I suppose that some of that is documented just as if Vlad the Impaler, his atrocities are documented, maybe exaggerated. I mean, I, I don't really know for sure, but I, I do want to read this passage about the like the true history of this character. So the film is based on a true story. The action takes place somewhere in Eastern Europe in the middle of the 17th century. The country concerned has been at war with the Turkish Empire for almost 100 years, and most of it is now occupied by the Turks. 
the northern part has remained free, and this is where the castle stands. The castle in the neighboring county has belonged for centuries to the Bathory family. Elizabeth marries the young count, and the castle becomes their home. Most of the time that they were married, the count was away at war, leaving the countess alone in the castle. They did have a daughter. She was sent to live in Vienna at the age of six. That was to keep her safe from the fighting that was happening in the war. When the movie begins, she is beginning to return home for the first time in many years. One last little point to understand her cruelty, you must realize that this is the part of the country where the value of human life in the lower classes was very cheap. Peasants and servants lived in poverty and ignorance. The villages were overcrowded with hungry refugees and were open to frequent attacks by Turks and outlaws. To work at the castle meant more food, winter warmth, and more protection. But the price was high. The countess was feared almost as much as the Turks or the devil himself. So that's just a little bit of context. And even that may have a, a bit of fiction into it, but I do think it does, it establishes a, a background that is hinted at with various plot points in the movie, but doesn't really explain. So I, I kind of appreciated that extra information. That would have been interesting if they would have gone more towards, I guess, maybe that path with the story. I mean, I, I know what they were trying to to capitalize on, on Dracula fame and, and all that, but if they would have gone maybe the more historical route. Yeah. And like I said, they kind of drop little nuggets without giving the context. Like when the widow is riding in her carriage after her husband's funeral, there are peasants chasing the carriage and yes. they are saying your, your husband promised us jobs and, you know, they need work. They're starving. And, she basically ignores them, and then the carriage actually runs over one of them yes. without her even flinching. And that is the first time we hear the peasants calling her devil woman. Yeah. Her reputation is established. And that's one of my kind of my problems in this film is that I know there becomes a string of murders and people are investigating, but I never really got the evidence like that suggested to the townspeople that she was responsible so I do think they kind of chose to focus on the sensational aspects yeah. without really sort of explaining or providing a plot that gave credibility to the outcome. I think it would have been interesting if they would have gone that route to make it kind of a pseudo historical drama a bit more than they did. I mean, the, the opening credits features a, a painting. It's an 1896 painting by a Hungarian artist of the real countess. They were clearly trying to tie into that but then they go the whole sensationalized countess dracula route there wouldn't have probably been the disappointment when people said wait where's dracula there's no exactly dracula. because you're like waiting the whole film is like we're okay where's the dracula connection okay the only dracula connection is someone says dracula at the end of the film that's really it i mean other than the blood there's no vampires i really don't even know if i consider this a horror movie there's what maybe it's horror. I mean, just the overall. Yeah, but more of a thriller kind of mystery in a way. I mean, I, I guess, though, when you send the man who loves you and you string him along and send him to get your victims and then 
you know, well, so drink their blood. The, I guess that's horror. <laughs> you got murder and you've got bathing in blood. I mean, that's a pretty horrific element. No, it's not vampires going around that want to suck your blood and, and the traditional, definitely, I think anyway, definitely a, a horror film simply because of what you're you're dealing with, you know, murders and, and taking the blood of virgins to make yourself look youthful, kind of a weird picture of Dorian Gray turned sideways kind of thing. I don't know. I, I, I think it's definitely horror elements. Yeah, I agree. I do like this sort of soap opera plot, though, that's running through it, the the way she manipulates her men. So the Captain Dobie, who now that her husband has died, can finally publicly profess his love for her and he would do about anything for her. And he does. And then the younger man that when she turns younger and and, and this is never really clear. Did you interpret it that this younger guy, his friend from the war? basically inherited the important part of his estate, the horses in the cottage and other people were kind of disappointed. So they never really made a direct connection, but do you think when she was younger and she was manipulating him, it was all a scheme for her to get her hands back on the fortune? Hmm. I hadn't picked up on that, but. Because I really don't know. I don't know if that's who she would have, you know, really fallen in love with. Yeah. That's an interesting plot point that they could have, yeah, they could have connected a little better if, if in fact, that was an intention. And if not, I mean, it could have been. And it was also a little muddy that, you know, she, he he liked her when she was old. I mean, he was in love with her as that. And. She, I think he preferred her. Yeah, well, definitely. He did not approve of what she was doing, even though he was sort of. Well, and I think I think his age, too. I think he he when she went younger, it's like, well, you know, there's this now this big age difference. And but she dangles in front of him having sex with her and kind of holds that out as a little reward yes. or a treat. And I got confused about whether I think she thought. He wanted her younger self. And that's what she was kind of dangling in front of him is, oh, you do this. You can have sex with me. I don't think that's what he had in mind. I think he. He preferred the more mature version of her. Uh, Yeah, because I think, yes, clearly that was an incentive for him. But I think the whole idea of her being younger was almost repulsive to him in in some ways. But you're not not even taking into account how how she got went about it. But there's the line where, well, what's your daughter going to think about this now? Yes. As young as she is. I think that was the part that like, it was just too complicated and stuff. He's like, he just wanted her the way she was. And all the other stuff just kind of muddied the waters. He was definitely jealous. He tried to set up the younger guy sleeping with a whore. Eventually though, Elizabeth gets her way because that becomes her dinner. Or I keep saying dinner. She does not eat, bite them or drink the blood. She bathes it. So I apologize. And the other thing I wasn't real clear on, and by the way, I must have been extremely tired when I watched this. I could not sit still. I was fidgety. I kept looking at my watch and no time had passed. And I, I don't think that was a fair assessment. I don't think it's a slow movie. I do think sort of it all comes together in the end and is stronger than as it began. I, I don't want to say this was a slow movie, but 
I had difficulty getting through it the particular night I chose to watch. So these things that I didn't catch maybe were more clear. But the other thing I wasn't clear on is her daughter disappears on her way home. We mentioned she was coming home and she's taken by bandits and kidnapped. Elizabeth was behind that, right? Right. Yeah. Okay. At first, I don't think you suspected that, but then it kind of became evident the further that the movie went on. Yeah. I kind of like that. I like that plot point. It was a little odd in, in sense. It's like, you, know, you kind of kept thinking, why wouldn't she just try to, to get, which she eventually does, you know, get away. But it, yeah, you had the whole creepy aspect of it there with the, the character guy that it was holding her in the cabin. I, I like that, but it was kind of an odd series of events. I mean, you were concerned about her and, but then you kind of got thinking, why doesn't she just get away? Which, I mean, I, he locked the door, I think, at one point, didn't he, or something. So Stuffed her in a trunk so she couldn't get out. When... Yeah, yeah. So Yeah, they and they do a lot of intercutting between what's happening at the castle and the daughter. And I don't know, it's pretty fundamental to what's going on, but I always thought it was just secondary. And when they yes. cut to the daughter, I was like, oh, yeah, she's out there. There's the main story going on, and then there's this kind of almost forgotten subplot but that ends up becoming a much bigger moment as you get kind of like the two stories merge right in the the final final and that's what i think that's when i said it kind of worked for me is when those plots came together and i wasn't sharp enough as i usually am to put that together along the way yeah i think i started like at 6 15 so it was very close to my bedtime (laughs) i have to admit with the second film, you know, I had to watch it a few times, uh, Lady of Frankenstein, because I started watching it too late, which I sometimes tend to do. And then I end up dozing and rewinding and finally saying, oh, my gosh, I just need to go to bed. And then revisiting the film from the get go. And, and everyone knows about if you're a movie buff of any genre, it seems like falling asleep in front of the TV late at night is is kind of a common thing. I saw a meme about that the other day and a, actually an article on it. How to avoid falling asleep in front of the TV. And it was absolutely the most ludicrous suggestion. So, <laughs> yeah, I challenge you. Go back and rewatch the... Yeah, the I will someday. You said you watched it on Blu-ray. So yeah. I mean, there was the, the quality good on Blu-ray? It was fine. The only... Well... No, yes, it was a beautiful movie. However, I do not believe high definition does the makeup any favor. The old age makeup is not always very good. You could well, clearly see a line on her forehead where they had applied the the wrinkles or, or whatever. Yeah, the DVD too, for that yeah. matter. So but maybe I, you can't avoid that at all. But just, you know, that that was very disappointing. And also just coincidentally, Ingrid Pitt's lovely and another the uh, disappointment I have about the Blu-ray is that it's very short on bonus features. There is a a commentary with Ingrid Pitt I did not listen to, but there's really only one 10-minute feature that I watched. They pointed out the fact that Ingrid Pitt was not really in that many horror movies, and yet she is treated as this horror queen. Back to Ingrid Pitt being in this and her makeup. Yes, she's beautiful when she's young. But not only did I think the makeup was a little ineffective, I don't think she moved like an old woman. I think she was still moving and walking around as if she was young. I just I think wasn't that, watching her movements necessarily, so I don't know that I could. I'm sorry. 
she's not solid. There's things on there that move. Well, this is, well, yes, this is true. Especially so. when she squishes them between her arms. Yes. Did you make anything of that? I mean, I get the nudity. I get the, the breast, the blood dripping down him. But when she squeezed her arms as if to cover, she was covering nothing. She was squishing them out between her oh, forearms. That's, 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 <laughs> yeah, there, no common sense. That's That's pure early 70s hammer. The director is like, I want you to squeeze together. This is a, this will be a major plot point. This yeah, is- I didn't know if that was unintentional. I mean, I, you think blood would be squishy, not slick, but you know, they just kind of squeezed out like a orange on a juice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I'm thinking that's pretty much it. Was a point of titillation. <laughs> titillation, yes, yes. I thought there was some good camera work. The scene where she does pierce somebody's neck with her hairpin, the camera lens or screen splashes red with yes. as if it was splashed with blood. That's kind of a cool effect. I that was cool too, yeah. But not many really special effects or other things in this film. No, I mean, because again, you're not dealing with a vampire, so there's no changing of shape. So you're not having really any special effects there to contend with. I mentioned when we talked about how it all comes together at the end. I do want to describe how that happens because that's another soap opera plot point that is Which really, actually, really... I did enjoy that that crazy. Yes. I did so he goes that. to get her final victim, you know, and he gets her daughter. So it, that exposes her. It, it um, did feel like a Friday soap opera cliffhanger that you have to wait till Monday or... Yeah the May season finale of some shows like, Oh my gosh, how this, yeah, I totally felt that. And yet I totally was, was accepting all of it. A lot. I liked about it. I did. I enjoyed this one. It's it's, I don't think it's one of hammers best, but it's not one of their, their, their least efforts either. I think there's films in the hammer filmology, that filmography, filmology, filmography. that I enjoy less. So this is kind of, Mid-range, maybe maybe a little lower mid-range, on, I think, on my overall appreciation of Hammer films, which is not a bad place to be. I've got a little bit of more history, uh, not of the real life, but of the making of the film that I think is interesting. And it, it brought it up because it kind of talked about the context of when this came out in Hammer's history. And Peter Sazzy, the director, took the idea to Hammer. He had read about Countess Elizabeth in newspaper article. This was at a time when the kind of movies that Hammer was making was like Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde, Hands of the Ripper, Twins of Evil. So this is that little pocket, I think, where they're still kind of testing and trying to evolve and change. Yeah. When Peter Sazdy found this article and read it as interest, he talked to a producer he knew, Alexander Powell, who uh, ended up partially co-writing the script and he had worked with hammer before so he said i know they were looking for new projects so we decided to take it to sir james carreras he sent me out of his office while he spoke to brian lawrence his number two and money man and they made some phone calls he called me back in and said can you start six weeks from monday at pinewood shook his hand there was no script nothing just a poster one lunch a couple of phone calls and he was starting six weeks from then <laughs> that also tells you the sort of the the planning and and forethought that Hammer was giving 
movies at the time. And we know they're notorious for creating a poster and then making a movie or, or not, making, not it. making it. Yes. Yeah. Nessie, yeah. I wanted to see Nessie so bad. I know. I know. So what trivia do you have on it? Well, you know, we've got really a, a great cast and uh, a lot of horror cred amongst the cast to one degree or another. Talking Ingrid Pitt, Countess Elizabeth, also in The Vampire Lovers, The House That Dripped Blood, The Wicker Man. She's not in as many films as, as people think, but she's definitely in some, some big ones. This is the first bit of Doctor Who connections here. She's actually in two different Doctor Who stories. In the early 70s, 1972, she was in a six-part adventure called The Time Monster, opposite the third Doctor, John Pertwee, and Roger Delgado played the master in that one. Twelve years later, she came back and did a four-part story in 84 called Warriors of the Deep, which saw the return of the Silurians and the Sea Devils combined together in one film. They were two villains created during the Pertwee era. They came back during the fifth Doctor, Peter Davison era. Nigel Green, Dobby or Dobie, I always keep thinking Harry Potter when I hear that. <laughs> um, played Hercules in Jason and the Argonauts. He was Nayland Smith in The Face of Fu Manchu. He was in The Skull. He played Little John in the Sword of Sherwood Forest, one of the Robin Hood films that Hammer did. And this was actually one of his last films, unfortunately. He died on May 15th, 1972, at the age of 47, of a drug overdose that the family believes was an accidental drug overdose, but it was never confirmed one way or the other. Sandra Ellis plays Lieutenant Emery Toth, the, the new boyfriend. He was uh, in... Sherlock Holmes and the Leading Lady, a 1991 film which features Christopher Lee as Sherlock Holmes, Patrick McNee as Dr. Watson, and Morgan Fairchild. Christopher Lee playing Sherlock Holmes, but without the dubbing. He actually gets to use his own voice this go-around. Sandra Ellis was also in The Evil of Frankenstein. We have Maurice Denham as Grandmaster Fabio, the historian Another Doctor Who reference, he was in the 1984 adventure The Twin Dilemma, opposite the sixth Doctor, Colin Baker, which is universally recognized as the worst debut story for any of the Doctors. Uh, he was in the movie Torture Garden, and a film, Paranoiac, and in a film that I, I'm trying to remember if I've seen this or not, Blood Beast from Outer Space. Now, that title did not connect with me, and I'm like, what is this? It's a 1965 film also called The Night Caller, and for some reason, that title is ringing a bell with me. I looked that up, because whenever I, I hear a film that I'm not familiar with, it kind of draws my attention to it. Right. We got Leslie in down as Countess Alona, Elizabeth's daughter. <laughs> Interesting your cred, Leslie Ann Down is an actress who did a lot of different things over a period of time. She was in Beastmaster 3. I don't know. And that just caught my eye. And I'm really? Beastmaster 3. Okay. The Pink Panther Strikes Again from Beyond the Grave, which would have been from around this time period. And you and I should remember, I know I do, the character of Stephanie Rogers on Dallas. She was a uh, love interest of JR for a period of time. Patience Collier played Julie the Maid. Poor Julie the Maid was kind of used and, and kind of ends up not having a good end. Speaking uh, of bad of makeup, was that her real nose? 
I don't know. I don't know. It did kind of look weird. Lots of TV work for Patience Collier, but not really any horror cred that I could see. You mentioned some of the the names involved with the the creds for the the writing and such. As according to IMDb, and you got to take this with a grain of salt, this was supposedly based on a book by Valentine Penrose, who has no other credits, was uncredited, and I really couldn't find anything at first glance for Valentine Penrose. So question mark there. Based on an idea by Gabrielle Ronay. No other yes, credits. And that was the person that wrote the article that Peter Sazdy read. Okay. Thank you for that. Yep. So we have Alexander Mencher, Alexander Paul. Had some producer credits, but one thing that caught my eye is he produced an early 50s Hammer sci-fi film, Four-Sided Triangle, that I saw many years ago. I, I remember enjoying it, but I don't remember much about it. And then uh, you mentioned the screenplay by Jeremy Paul. Lots of TV work. Journey to the Unknown and Tales of the Unexpected are some things that he did. Peter Sazdy, 65 credits. Definitely some, some horror cred. And then one film that's just kind of like, what went wrong there? So you've got Sherlock Holmes and the Leading Lady, 91, directed. You did some Hammer House of Horror. The Stone Tape. Doom Watch, which... Might be something in our future. Hands of the Ripper, Taste the Blood of Dracula, and The Lonely Lady in 1983 with Pia Zadora. <laughs> he had such a good run going in, in the in the 70s and up to the Hammer House of Horror. And somewhere between 1980 and 83, he gets saddled with Pia Zadora. Yes, I've seen The Lonely Lady many years ago on HBO. And that's about all I can say about that. Obviously, things went wrong there. You missed the adjectives. Worldwide sensation, Pia Zadora. Oh, God. Yes, star of Santa Claus Conquers the Martians, which I think is probably an infinitely better film. And take that for what it's worth. A couple of little things surrounding Ingrid Pitt. Uh, She was not the original choice for the lead role. Apparently, Diana Rigg was. She turned down the role. I don't know why. Diana Rigg at this time period, it may have been maybe the the sex involved with it, because I don't think Diana Rigg was really doing any of that at this point. It would have been interesting to see her in that role, though. And then, of course, Ingrid Pitt's voice is dubbed in this for apparently no reason, but it caused a point of consternation between her and the director. Director Peter Sazdy, for whatever reason, felt like her voice needed to be dubbed And she uh, vowed that she would never work or speak with him again. That is something I learned in that extra feature is that, yes, she was unhappy, but it turns out that the woman who dubbed her didn't sound much different than Ingrid Pitt herself. That's weird. I, you know, sometimes the dubbing choices I get if there's a heavy accent or whatever, but sometimes there's dubbing happens and, and like the voices sound so much similar anyway, you wonder why. If she would have had a bit of an accent and if they would have gone that more of a historical route on this film, that accent would have enhanced the performance. One thing I meant to mention when I was talking about Hammer being in this new phase is that a lot of the creators were new to Hammer. It wasn't the same set director and composer and all the crew that they had for those classic gothic Hammer films. So that is... Another aspect in them kind of trying to find their way. I do also want to mention that a couple of scenes were 
threatened by the censors to be removed. And somehow they sweet talked the censors and the scenes never would have had to be removed. These scenes without them, this definitely would not have been a horror movie. So I just wanted to real quick recap the scenes from Reel 4. They were told to remove the shots of the dead prostitute with her slashed wrist and the bowl full of her blood. Remove the shot of the naked countess wiping herself with a bloody sponge as Dobie and Emery enter the room. And then in Reel 5, remove all but a brief flash of the first shot of a naked woman's corpse seen by servants in the cellar and all shots of more than one corpse. I think one of their convincing arguments was that technically one of those scenes, it would have been impossible to remove it. It would have drastically changed the course of the story or something. I don't know, whatever they use. It's always amazing film censorship. It seems like at the time, you know, in the UK, they were they were concerned about blood and gore. But breasts can just be on display with no concern. And in the US, it's always kind of the opposite, right? We can we can see somebody disemboweled, but heaven forbid we show a nipple because that's just horrible. This total opposite, and both of them, I think, are are kind of ludicrous. But if you're gonna censor something, I guess I could understand maybe the violent aspect being censored. I don't know. Are Americans hang up with with nudity? But yet we love our violence and and it's weird. The two countries are very almost polar opposites, especially, you know, as we look back at that time period. Anyway. Yeah, that could really get me on a rant. So I will avoid that. Do you have anything else to say about Countess Dracula? I would recommend Countess Dracula. Again, it's not Hammer's best. It's not their worst, in my opinion. It, It falls, as I said, somewhere in the middle. I think it's a fun film. Don't expect to find any vampires anywhere. There's a Countess, but there's no Dracula. Fun film. I'm glad I revisited it after all these years. And it'd be a film I would I would revisit again in the future. Yeah, and sort of reflecting on it and talking about it, I would recommend to myself that I watch it again. And I bet I will like it more. I just want to make sure I got a good night's sleep before. Rich, before we go to the next movie, you know, 70s is my sweet spot. And I am just dying to know what you've dug up for uh, our alternatives to watching these two movies in the early 70s. We had a few years to choose from because the movies were released in the UK in 71, but released in the US over the course of 72 and 73, right? I think Lady Frankenstein was released in 73. So I went with 1972, trying to find kind of a happy medium there. The music of the early 70s, it's a little hit and miss. And this, this top 10 is kind of... A little bit of this and a little bit of that. Before we get to the top 10, I want to mention a little bit of music trivia here, which has nothing to do with horror films. But, you know, that's me. I go on these side rants, and that's that's just who I am. Mm-hmm. The number 14 song that week, did you know that Rick Springfield, Jesse's Girl, 1980s heartthrob, actually had a music career in the early 70s? He was actually started in Australia, and he actually had several songs released in the States. And in 1972, this particular week, he peaked at number 14 with a song called Speak to the Sky, nine years before Jesse's Girl became a hit. Okay, number 10. Now, you and I talked about this a couple days ago. This is a song that I did not recognize by the name, didn't recognize by the group. Uh, Carla didn't either until we... 
played it on YouTube, and then all of a sudden it's like, that's the song. Popcorn by Hot Butter. That's the number 10 song of 1972. Go figure. Uh, number nine, a song that I did not know, didn't recognize it when I played it, Backstabbers by the OJs. Now, I challenged you the other night. Did you watch the song? I certainly did, yes. Entertain. I was not disappointed. Okay, so that's my challenge to the listeners. If you don't know the song, even if you do, go to YouTube and search Backstabbers by the OJs on Soul Train, and I promise you, you will be entertained. Number eight, getting into a little bit of rock and roll here with, uh, I believe this is their biggest hit, Nights in White Satin by the Moody Blues, a, uh, a true rock classic. Number seven, a song that I actually thought was in the 60s. I didn't expect it to be 72. My Ding-A-Ling by Chuck Berry. Number six, if there was a song that screamed 1972, this would be it. Baby Don't Get Hooked on Me by Mac Davis. Number five, a song that I did not recognize by the title or the band, but then once it played on YouTube, it was like, oh, that's the song. Go All the Way by the Raspberries. Mm. Number four, I don't know if this was his last top ten hit, but I'm going to say it might very well be or a contender thereof. The King, Elvis Presley, and Burnin' Love. Number three, Everybody Plays the Fool by The Main Ingredient. Mm. Number two, a song that I did not recognize once we listened to it. Kind of early 70s jazz funk fusion thing going on. Use Me by Bill Withers. Number one in 1972. It's a song we've talked about here on the show. Going way, way back. It was one of our very first episodes that we did. Hmm. Ben by Mike. Ah, oh, yes. <laughs> the two of us need no more. We both found what we were looking for. We this is going back. If I, I've got the info pulled up here, folks. This is going back to one of our very first episodes. Episode number six from June of 2017, Willard and Ben. And this is one of our early episodes that is available. We remastered it, and it is out on SoundCloud, so you can listen to that episode. Those were two of the very first movies I watched with Carla, and that that very well could have, could have ended it all. <laughs> it nearly broke her out of the gate. And thankfully, I was like, okay, let's watch some other stuff real quick because these are not the usual fare that I watch. Anyway, Ben, Michael Jackson, number one. If we went to the movies, October 11th, 1972, a movie that I have to admit, never heard of, and I don't have any recollections of it. I think it's one of those films that doesn't get talked about today, kind of slips through the cracks. It's an action crime drama called The New Centurions. Mm. George C. Scott and Stacey Keach. Uh, it was the first of two weeks at number one. If we would have gone to the movies in the previous two weeks, a film that did immediately send you down a whole different path, 
Superfly. <laughs> okay. If we were staying at home Saturday night, October 14th, watching television, it's the start of a new fall television season. If we were watching ABC, it was already season two for this show, Kung Fu with David Carradine. At the eight o'clock hour, Central Standard Time, it was uh, one of the very first episodes of a new show called The Streets of San Francisco with Carl Malden and a very young and future superstar, Michael Douglas. And then the nine o'clock hour, we had a season two episode of The Sixth Sense with Gary Collins Mm. called With Affection, Jack the Ripper. On CBS, we had All in the Family followed by a show that I have never heard of, but interesting cast, a show called Bridget Loves Bernie. Mm, Yeah. Ran one season, 24 episodes, starring David Bernie, Meredith Baxter, who became Meredith Baxter Bernie, and a pre-Charlie's Angels, David Doyle. Uh, Then we had the Mary Tyler Moore show, and we had one of the episodes from its last season on the air, Mission Impossible followed by a 30-minute paid political program. (laughs) It was an election year. On NBC, we had Emergency, and then the uh, Saturday Night Movie was a film called The Devil's Brigade from 1968, which pretty much, based on what I read, was kind of like a Dirty Dozen-type film with William Holden, Cliff Robertson, Claude Akins, Carol O'Connor, and Richard Dawson. That's what was happening in 1972. Fun, fun stuff. Thank you for that. You're welcome. What evil science was practiced in this laboratory of nightmares? Who is this irresistible creature who has an insatiable love for the dead? What dread terror stalked the townspeople? Legend of Frankenstein once again brings terror and nightmare to the screen. Stand! Joseph Cotton is Baron Frankenstein, the scientist who dared to create a monster. Frankenstein. She's beautiful. She's evil. And she'll do anything for love. Think of it. Think of me. Think of possessing me. Would you like to have my body bend to you? Would you like to make love to me? She creates a new, more terrifying monster. I am my father's daughter. You are referring to uh, animal transplants. Human. Only the monster she creates can satisfy her strange desires. Mm-hmm. 
web of terror. There has never been a movie like Lady Frankenstein. When her father, spoiler alert, is killed by the monster he created, Talia Frankenstein finally has a chance to perform some experiments of her own. Soon, she's putting the brain of her lover Charles into the body of her lover Tom to defend her father's legacy and racing against time to avoid an angry, torch-bearing mob. This is going to be fun, Richard, some of these names, but I'm just going to dive in fearlessly and attempt it. All right. Lady Frankenstein, written by Edward DiLorenzo, Mel Wells, those weren't too hard, Umberto Bersato, Egidio Gelso, and Orellano Lupi. And The Kitchen Sink. <laughs> Directed by Mel Wells, starring Joseph Cotton, Rosalba Neri, Paul Muller, Ricardo Pizzuti, and Herbert Fox, released in Italy on October 22nd, 1971, and in the U.S. a couple years later, October of 1973. I think I told the story last time, Richard, that I have a, a wonderful Blu-ray edition of this from another country that my region-free, quote, <laughs> Blu-ray player does not play several years and a couple of moves since it still doesn't play How frustrating. so i watched it thinking film detective hey they've done some nice restorations and put out some nice videos this wasn't one of them it was a very rough cut on the film detective streaming channel how did you watch it i had a copy of this in a frankenstein box set that i bought at best buy several years ago quite a few years ago and it's a double feature. It had Lady Frankenstein and Jesse James meets Frankenstein's daughter. Has a little documentary with it and then a ton of Frankenstein trailers. That's what I was going to watch until I was looking for a trailer. And then as I saw the trailer, it's like, well, wait a minute. Here's a movie and, and it's like a director's cut and it's got an hour and 40 minute running time. Whereas I know the public domain print, which is the version you saw, runs closer to like 83 minutes, roughly, give or take. This version has a little less than 20 extra minutes. And when I did a quick play, the print was significantly better, really good looking quality. I'm going to say maybe pulled from that Blu-ray, but we'll never know because you didn't see it. So, Oh, we'll know. I'll <laughs> eventually get a new region-free player or something. This is a film that you can find in a lot of places, but it's going to be the public domain print. Uh, and if you don't have access to a region-free Blu-ray player, go to YouTube, look for Lady Frankenstein Director's Cut. You'll find it. We might not necessarily sing praises about this film, but judge for yourself. Listen to what we have. It's not a horrible film. It's not necessarily something we would encourage you to avoid. At least I wouldn't. Sometimes the rough cut of a public domain movie adds, we've talked about this before, it adds yes. to the enjoyment of it. This one, though, was just Seemed too choppy, seemed like too many scenes ended and started somewhere else, too dark in some spots to really tell what was going on. The opposite could be said. Maybe for some people, that's a good thing once we get 
talking about some of the makeup and stuff. But well, the, the the public domain does have all the nudity, apparently. So don't think that you're getting 20 minutes of extra nudity. You're not, because all that's in the public domain print. All the footage, the extra stuff is really just extra dialogue and conversation. I don't know that there's really any plot point differences. Do you have any history with this movie other than just picking it up on that double feature DVD? That was probably my first time becoming aware of it. I don't recall it playing on television, although it it seems like it's something that could have played on Creature Features with Cremation Mortem back in the day. I don't remember it, though. I don't recall seeing it at any point other than probably being at some point, maybe in the 90s, becoming aware of it. It was a VHS tape in the video stores. We had it. And looking at it now, the box isn't that bad, but I put my monster kiddom on pause during this era. And uh, I still like the horror movies, but I really wasn't, I was not into something like Lady Frankenstein. And the cover of this was so unappealing to me. It just looked uh, like something I don't want to see. It's, it's the, the monster. It's the horrible makeup. It's the, frumpy outfit it's wearing and the fact that it was called lady frankenstein and i always i know frankenstein is the man that's the doctor but you look at this and you see the title lady frankenstein and you think that the monster is the lady (laughs) potentially a pregnant lady except her bump isn't showing in her stomach it's showing on her head i always had in my mind that this was you know a bad movie and that in more recent years i've heard more and more about it Discover the Horror Podcast, John Kitley from Kitley's Crypt. They talked about it, enjoyed it quite a bit, but that's even been subsequent to, you know, this is a blind buy, basically. It came out on DVD, on Blu-ray, and it was only available in crappy public domain prints, and I decided there was something here more than just what my impression of it was, so that's that's when I purchased it, but had not seen it until this viewing. So I came in very jaded about it. I carry some of that with me. Some of that was true. (laughs) But I I really do look forward to seeing it again in a better version. There's got to be more to it that I just haven't got with my experience thus far. Well, I I don't know that there's that much more to it. (laughs) This is a early 70s Euro horror film. For starters, that's an acquired taste. You can love classic horror films, but there are those of us who who don't appreciate Euro horror. I've been very late coming on board to appreciating Euro horror. And now a lot of that love has just happened probably in the last five years or so. They were movies that I just, you know, I, we've talked about how, you know, it, it took me quite a few viewings to appreciate Paul Nashi. It took me quite a few viewings to appreciate Suspiria. I'm still not 100% on board with this Yellow film. I am enjoying, as I randomly discover, or you know, in this case, rediscovering a film from this, this time period, a 60 or 70s Euro horror film, and then enjoying it for what it is. I think I can safely say the genre will never be like my number one go-to. But if I'm in the right and the mood and the right frame of mind, I go into these films and I can appreciate them for what they are. 
they've got little idiosyncrasies and there's so many other podcasts out there that would be able to describe it better than I will. Sometimes the dubbing, it, it's kind of quirky and it's it's kind of fun. Sometimes it's better to see these films in their original language with subtitles. That's not the case, even though this is a director's cut, it is a dubbed version still. And I don't know if if the Blu-ray that you have has subtitles if in its original language, or does it even have a version with that? I don't know. You know, sometimes these movies didn't have that. For me, I was in the right frame of mind when I watched this movie, even though I was tired the first night. I was getting into it. And I was enjoying it. There's kind of a pattern with, with these films when you watch these movies. The quote-unquote damsel in distress in some of these films, or if there is a, a strong female lead, there, there's going to be a measure of sex. Sex is going to become involved at some point. The men, at some point or another, are always kind of sleazy to one degree or another, whether they're the sleazy boyfriend, the you know the sleazy killer. And I think that, you know, when you look at, at the monsters in some of these films, and the special effects may not always be A-list. And that's part of the charm. With the monster in this one, we're definitely not A-list special effects. I'm not sure we're in B or C territory. We're, we're definitely, we're definitely... We're lower. further down the alphabet. <laughs> yes. Yes. I don't know that we're, we're in Z grade, but we're not nah. very far above. It's pretty bad. I enjoyed the film. I, I, yeah. I enjoyed it for what it was. What it was. There's going to be a, those people listening to the show is like they're going to love it, and then others will be like, "Eh." I am with you on the your horror, except I think I've been a fan of it a little bit longer than you have. Everything you said is true, and with that perspective, I just think this is run of the mill your horror. I don't think there's anything distinctive about it really that that stands out to make it be one of the better. You're right. It's not horrible. There's definitely um, some scenes, though, in this one that I think, for me, stand out. But not maybe not anything that you wouldn't see in any other Euro horror. Yeah. Well, for me, it's the dialogue. We're so many writers, I don't know who you can credit for them. But it's got some great lines. And, it does have, yeah. Uh, I noted some of them. Great being not necessarily meaning good, but, you know, a nonsensical scratch-your-head type of line can still be a great line. So, such as... Such a grotesque dream. Perhaps he will be a nightmare. <laughs> we got the typical God complex. And I don't even remember if this was the father or the daughter, but here on earth, man is God. And then there's this wonderful exchange. And this is found on IMDb. So I did not note it, but I do want to read it. Tanya Frankenstein says, my dear man, you are obnoxious, extremely vulgar. And while I am certain that you are thinking what you are thinking is merely fantasy on your part, I would say you spend too much time alone in your fantasies. Be careful. It will soften your brain far quicker than can whiskey. The man replies, how can someone so beautiful be such a bitch? And she responds, depends on the company I'm with. <laughs> Full of what I would call great lines. Very fun. For me, the, the weakest part of the cast and the kind of the weakest, one of the weaker parts of the film is the casting of Joseph Cotton as Baron Frankenstein. Absolutely. And I have to, I've been savoring the moment to, to give this line. I don't want people to think I'm speaking badly about the person, but people who say, you know, when you ask that question, what role did you want to see Vincent Price play that he never played? Yeah. Well, if you ever imagine him playing Dr. Frankenstein, to me, that's how Joseph Cotton, he was Vincent Price playing Frankenstein. Possibly, yeah. 
but not as good as Vincent Price would have done it. Yeah, he wasn't very good. I think he's a serviceable actor. I don't think Joseph Cotton was ever an A-list actor. Maybe earlier on in his career, because he did, uh, he was in the classic Gaslight. We he saw was better in Abominable Dr. Fives. Well, yeah, I, I think that that when you look at him in, in that era, or like Airport 77, he was in that, which we've covered on the show, as well as some other films around this time period. He wasn't A-list, but he wasn't bottom of the barrel either. I mean, he was in Soylent Green, Latitude Zero. Earlier on in the career, though, he was in Shadow of a Doubt. So I think maybe a younger version of him was higher up the, the food chain, so to speak. And this being coming towards the latter part of his career, taking on a role like this, I think they were looking for an American actor that uh, bring in the audience, somebody they could pay cheaply because this budget was was an issue with this film. Joseph Cotton was a quote-unquote name actor that name recognition people at the time would recognize his name and his face and would think that Lady Frankenstein was maybe more of an American production, which is why a lot of times they cast American actors in, the, in these roles was marketing. The end result, though, is that he was not convincing, in my mind, as Baron Frankenstein. And while I was totally fine with, with the rest of the cast, his was a weak point, and I wasn't sad when he when he was killed off uh, in the film. Oddly enough, he was killed off supposedly earlier than he was originally intended because of the budget problems with this film. And they killed him off earlier because they didn't have him for as long. Yet, I think it worked out the way I can't imagine him staying longer in the film. It would have been, it would have taken away from Tanya Frankenstein becoming the main lead at that point. Yeah, I didn't know until you told me that. And it, I mean, it is exactly, I'm not exaggerating, halfway through when he dies. So that's perfect timing in my mind, because then it switches and and we go to Tanya. Um, Whose motives, by the way, are a little fuzzy to me. I, I get it. She's taking, following in her father's footsteps. She's a doctor. She's just come back from school. She's got ideas of her own about experiments that probably take his further. But why exactly? There's there's mention that she wants to save his reputation and somehow bring the monster back and clean him up and show that his father really, her father really did accomplish something. Yet when she creates her creature, part of the purpose, because they don't think they can destroy the creature, is that she can create somebody that's the only thing that can destroy the monster. And she literally says this wonderful line in all these movies, it's the only way when there are hundreds of other ways. Am I right there? Or did I miss yeah. something in translation? No, I think, I think you're, you're spot on. I, I would add that. And as much as I hate to say this, but I think sex was a bit of a motivation in this too, because it seemed like she could have gotten anybody she wanted. She was very attractive, but she's using sex to lure the doctor into killing the character of, of Tom so she can make the monster put your brain in this body and and he'll be the was, perfect man she noticed Tom he, he was a bit of a simpleton you know he had some issues but he was an attractive guy and so there was some type of physical attraction there and then ultimately you know she wasn't like your typical mad scientist necessarily because she she's created this being that if if her whole purpose was 
to surpass her father's experiments and, and show what she really could do, then we wouldn't have got that final scene, right? Where she's like, you know, make love to me by the fire. While the well, yes, while down the, around her. <laughs> the torch-bearing crowd has popped up out of nowhere. So I, I don't know. I think there was there was some the sensuality side of it, you know, there there was there was other motivation with her. Maybe I'm going down a wrong path. No. Maybe it's just a and it's very a much like Countess Dracula because she uses the I'm going to say older. He's, he's not as old as Dobie was in Countess Dracula, but Charles was Frankenstein's assistant. And when Frankenstein died, he agreed to stay on and help her. And she seduces him and manipulates him to. But what's different is I believe if I'm not wrong, she does indeed have sex with him. She just doesn't dangle it as a, a way to get him to, to do yeah. the work. And then I could swear at some point in the movie, they referred to her as, oh gosh, what was his last name? They called her Mrs. as if she had married him. Did that ever happen or did I mishear them? I don't think so. I mean, I, I swear they called her Marshall. I swear they called her Mrs. Marshall. I think you're right. I think they did. And I don't think that was any part yeah, I didn't. That maybe was just a mistake and or something. But uh, I did not think they got married until I heard that. Then wants the body, and she has sex with the simpleton, <laughs> and then she kind of realizes, oh, put those two together. So I want to talk about that scene and how it definitely perverse in the way that it plays out. She's seducing Thomas to, yeah. to and and once he kind of gets the gist of this is what's going on. She's seducing him, and then Dr. Marshall's, you know, creeping in the background, like, and then once he knows it's his time, comes in, grabs the pillow, and is suffocating Thomas. She stays on on, on mm-hmm. top of Thomas, and then she is clearly, she's aroused by the fact that he's getting killed, because she's, like, starts biting her hand. Did you not catch any of that? I, either I didn't notice that fine nuance or it was a part that was cut or okay i don't recall that at all she she's on top of him yeah and, and, I, and he's and she starts biting her hand like seductively and she's clearly orgasmic in her actions while thomas is kind of you know grasping his last breaths and moving mm. his last she finally kind of has this moment of release if you will as Thomas is officially dead, Hmm. very perverse in the way it's like, that's where I kind of go with, there's a sex aspect to to her her desires. It's not just a pure female mad scientist. I'm going to prove my father right and surpass his studies. There's sex involved in it. And clearly that the way that that plays out, she she's attracted to Thomas, I think personally. And I think that, it's kind of creepy and sensual. And am I getting aroused by this scene? I shouldn't be. This is kind of bad, but it's a weird, kind of weird way it plays out. Oddly, I think does add some uniqueness to it. You know, when you get to the final scene of the movie, which does match up, because I did see the final scene of both. The creature, the the first creature, if you will, has, has been killed. And now she's going to celebrate the moment of success with Thomas. Then it's like, well, there's a fire. Let's Let's go here in front of the fireplace and... I didn't understand quite why 
that happened at the end the way that it did. And I guess we're just giving spoiler alert here because there's no other way to do it. Yeah. So Thomas has the the, the mind of, of Dr. Marshall. To me, there's been a bit of a disconnect, maybe. He's acting not 100% like Dr. Marshall, right? Right. I mean, so in the moment where, where he's in, in front of the fireplace with, with Tanya and they're beginning to make love and she's she's naked and having a good time, and he clearly knows what he's doing. He, it's a mutual thing. And then he just randomly reaches out, chokes her, and kills her. And then, bam, fini, the end pops <laughs> up. And I'm like, I'm sitting there like, what did I miss? You know, I had rewound it. It's like, did I, you know, nope, nope. And while, of course, all this is going on, you have the characters of Captain Harris, who has been investigating the murders that the creature's been committing, and the character of Julia, Thomas's sister, they're watching up above. He's telling her, we got to get out of here. There's the torch-bearing mob is burning the place down. Yet they clearly see that, you know, Thomas and, and Tanya are in front of the fireplace. It's Euro horror. And I don't understand his motivation. Why did he jump? Yeah, well, I agree that it's abrupt, but I didn't question that. And And again, I'm realizing now for the first time how much the story parallels Countess Dracula. When you said they're investigating the murders, that was very similar to what happened in Countess Dracula. But it's also, he's the same as Dobie. You know, he hasn't approved of what Talia's been doing, and he doesn't have a daughter to bring back to kind of stick it to her, but he's got his opportunity to end what she's doing. I I think the, the mind of Charles, I think just dominated the body part of Thomas. And I think that when you say he wasn't acting much like Charles, maybe it's he knew what he had to do or he was figuring out what to do, but it it made sense to me that he strangled her. Okay. I mean, that's as good a theory as any. I'm okay. I buy that. You know, Jeff. My phone is glad to meet me. Know how that happened? I wasn't even touching it. It does end very abruptly. I felt like we needed like another twenty seconds or something, and it's done. You know, and then you know, Matthew Broderick comes out and says, "You know, why are you still here? Go home." <laughs> I did like some of the, you know, it's a pretty standard, typical monster creation scene, the first one, and I liked some of the little touches though that we haven't seen before, like. And again, maybe I was seeing spots, but were there bats flying around the body as it was being raised into the skylight? Um, Maybe. I, I kind of think I remember that. Maybe. Okay. I thought that was kind of unique. I thought that. I kind of uh, like that scene. Yeah, I, think I, like, I did kind of like that. Yeah. I think that was well done. They took the heart and they had this long wire thing that they inserted like into one of the ventricles of the heart. That was like a detail and kind of an interesting little touch I don't think I had seen before. Then, of course, it's the same old, oh, the hypothalamus is damaged. We better use a different brain. Ah, yeah. So that was kind of good. I mean, it wasn't spectacular special effects or anything. The one thing that was hokey about that, though, was Frankenstein tells his daughter or Charles, I can't remember. Everything's ready to go. They just need a, a storm for the final step. Five seconds later, thunder outside. He was actually had the power to conjure a storm just when he needed well, it. 
Those big dramatic thunderstorms seem to happen in all these films. And almost like a, a, a missed opportunity in a comedy, you know, say like Young Frankenstein, where, well, I'm ready, but we're waiting. We're waiting. We're waiting. Like two days later, still waiting. Storms always happen at just the right moment. I think there was a missed opportunity, particularly since this is a Euro horror film, to really do a good gore scene primitive times. And instead of a stethoscope, they have this like funnel-like thing that they put the wide end on his chest and then you put your ear to the, the yeah. thin part. Joseph Cotton is listening to his heart right before he gets killed and he's killed by the monster crushing him or what. He gives him a big old bear hug and squeezes. And I'm pretty sure he did that while the doctor was listening with that device. And what a perfect opportunity to do a cut shot and show him lying on the ground with this device sticking out of his ear and blood running down. And they didn't. And maybe that's not how he died. That was really a missed opportunity to show that. Yeah, I will say that the gore was light in this. Yeah, really was. We had sex and nudity, but light on the gore yeah Uh, gore was light but it was still very violent i made a note that you don't really see much but like especially in the cottage or whatever that the monster attacked the the man and his wife very violent not visually but just he moved fast he was rough and like countess dracula where the villagers kind of accuse her without a lot of evidence there is a, a point here that the captain says people are saying Frankenstein created the monster. Well, why? Why? I I don't know what's tying him to that other than, hey, that's the story. That's what happens in every movie. (laughs) Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about the last minute investor that we had. uh, Yes. uh, An interesting true legend that was involved indirectly, Roger Corman. They had some last minute investing issues. There was some funds and I read a couple of versions of it, a bit convoluted. Suffice to say that there was some money that was held. They did have an 11th hour reprieve from Roger Corman's New World Pictures that comes along and becomes a last minute investor. It did mean that the budget was slashed. Shock that we would be dealing <laughs> with low budget with Roger Corman. Did we have any stock footage or footage from other movies? <laughs> yeah, I don't think it did. A lower budget was really one of the main reasons why Joseph Cotton's role was reduced. As we said, he's killed off halfway point in the film. There's so many people involved in this movie, but, you you know, allegedly anyway. And you wonder, did they all get paid to one degree or another? Maybe that was part of the budget problem because you've got, what, five people credited on the screenplay but then when I started doing the research on it, I was like, well, why do these people didn't do anything other than this? You know, so you had Umberto Brasato. Oh, you did that better than I did. I did. Thank you. Now I'm hungry for Italian. Nothing on IMDb. Next one's a little tougher. Is she Dio Gelso? Again, nothing. You're doing it next time. <laughs> Apparently, this was an original story by Dick Randall. Now, Dick Randall does have some cred. He did some stuff like The Mad Butcher, The Fresh Sex Murders, and The Real Bruce Lee. Not A-list stuff. Eduardo, I don't think, I think it's actually Edward, but I want to say Eduardo Lorenzo did 11 credits, but again, nothing that really caught my eye. Mel Wells is another screenplay credit, and of course, he was also the director, which I guess there's also some questions there as to what he actually directed and didn't direct. 
The only other really big thing of note on his directorial credits is he did 20 episodes of Spectre Man. Mm-hmm. Are you familiar with Spectre Man? No. Ariano Lupi was an uncredited director on the film, but didn't do any official credited directorial credits. You know, it doesn't have any credits. A lot of people involved in this. And then another name popped up in my research. Apparently, there's some thought that cameraman Ricardo Palatini did some of the directing and actually was more responsible for some of the better shots in the film because Mel Wells didn't necessarily have the cred, so to speak, to to pull off some of the better shots. A lot of names in the mix. I think it'd be fair to say, or would it be an exaggeration to call it a hot mess? um, I think to a degree, yes, yes, definitely. If if it's not a hot mess, it's a very warm mess ready to boil over. (laughs) Another little interesting fact in this is that originally this was going to be called Lady Dracula. Mel Wells was approached by Henry Cushing IV, no relation, of the Vanderbilt family. And he had a script called Lady Dracula. He had written this script mostly because he was hot for Rosalba Neri, who played Tanya Frankenstein. And he wanted to do a movie and was going to cast her in the lead role as Lady Dracula. But they found that Lady Dracula, the rights to that name, was actually owned by somebody else. So then it becomes Lady Frankenstein and then ends up being um, reworked accordingly by... Di Lorenzo. Apparently, Henry Cushing was a good-looking guy, but Rosalba Neri had no inklings or desire for him, mostly because he was just kind of an annoyance, I think, and the fact that he was this like rich boy who had been isolated and that just wasn't her thing. So poor Henry Cushing the fourth is at least partially responsible for this film, but I don't think he got what he was wanting out of it. And Rosalba Neri, very attractive, very attractive. So I could entirely understand why he would would be interested in her. Another little, you know, side note as far as where did all these ideas come for this film is the fact that film historian Roberto Curti believes that the script was inspired from a story called For the Love of Frankenstein, written by Bill Warren and Jack Sparling for the Vampirella comic. So that's like another ingredient into this little bubbling cauldron of mass confusion that makes you wonder really what was all pieced together on this film. You talked about makeup. I guess this is another ingredient. The makeup was done by Giuseppe Peruzzi. He did, of course, Sword and Sandals, Spaghetti Westerns, a few genre films, pseudo-genre films, The House of Cruel Dolls and Nude for Satan. This might have been beyond his his abilities as a makeup artist. Getting people ready for Sword and Sandal and Spaghetti Westerns is a little different than a full-fledged horror film. I will say, though, one of the better parts of this movie, despite the fact that we have all of these, these odd ingredients that don't necessarily mix, and it's just kind of creating this hot mess, as you say, the music, actually, I thought... Oh, my gosh. The music is fantastic. It's fantastic. It's the best part in many ways, I would say, of the film. Mm -hmm. When you look at who did the score, it's Alessandro Alessandro... I'm screwing up this name. Uh, Alessandro Alessandroni. His credits are legendary. Fistful of dollars for a few dollars more. The good, the bad, and the ugly. He was a guitarist and a whistler. So in a lot of these 
Spaghetti Westerns, when you hear the whistling, that is him. And he was a composer on 51 films. Clearly the bright spot, other than the beauty of Tanya Frankenstein. And that music for me evokes dark shadows. It uses some of the same instruments or sound. Sounds very much like dark shadows. I really liked it. You know, actually the cast is not bad aside from Joseph Cotton. So Rosalba Neri, who is billed as Sarah Bay in the American version, you know, it's that Americans don't know Italian names. So let's give a stupid American name to these <laughs> actresses. So, so silly. She's in a couple of things, including Hercules and the Haunted World, which, of course, is probably one of the most well-known Hercules films because it features Christopher Lee, as well as The Devil's Wedding Night, a film I have not seen, but I often see that title popping up. I think maybe even that was featured in an original episode of the Elvira series. So you had Paul Mueller playing Dr. Charles Marshall, definitely a, a character actor, a lot of credits, over, over 240 credits. Not the only horror film that I saw that he did was Count Dracula in 1970, the Jess Franco, Christopher Lee production. Marino Masse, or Peter Whiteman, who played Thomas Stack, was also in Nightmare Castle. Ricardo Pizzuti as the creature. He did a lot of henchmen and thug roles. He was, you know, Westerns, background characters. I believe he was also a bit of a stuntman, too, so that makes sense. I've got to be careful with this next name. We have <laughs> Herbert, Herbert, Herbert Fuchs. That's what I'm going to go with. Playing Tom Lynch. A lot of supporting roles, 283 film credits, but a couple of note, including Castle of Fu Manchu, one of the Christopher Lee films, and uh, Vincent Price film, House of a Thousand Dolls. Hmm. Renata Cash... There was like an Americanized version of that and her real version that basically sound the same, I believe. Julia Stack, the sister of Thomas. <laughs> now, in this movie, she plays a very pure character. You get the impression, right? Kind of naive and pure. But her film creds include such films as Sex Life in a Convent, Sex in the Office, and She Devils of the SS. She's also in another Frankenstein film, Frankenstein 80. A little bit of fun trivia on this one. We have Captain Harris, the investigator, played by Mickey Hargitay, who was at one time married to Jane Mansfield and is the father of Mariska Hargitay. <laughs> I'm not even going to explain that. People out there, they know why I said it that way, and I'm just going to leave it like that. His big claim to fame is Bloody Pit of Horror, I think, in these two films. That's about all I've got. There's a lot in this pot. And you've got, I think, some good some good actors. Some of the, the Italian cast is great. Rosalba Neri is, is beautiful. She's stunning. She's very perfect for the role as it plays out in the film. You've got some good elements going on here, great music. But then you've got other oddball things like Joseph Cotton and the, the makeup and some of the nonsensical stuff in the plot. I'll give it another chance at some point. It's a little too soon. Sounds like that YouTube version is the way to go, unless I get a new region free player. At least we do get Frankenstein in this. There is definitively, we get a couple Frankensteins in this one, and we get a couple monsters. Not a classic, but not a horrible film. Do you prefer one over the other? I would 
say probably Countess Dracula because I think it's a better made film overall, even though it's also got some flaws, as we said, it's not perfect, but I would say Countess Dracula over Lady Frankenstein. What about you? Eh, I don't know. You're you're right. Countess Dracula is a better movie. My enjoyment, though, is about equal. And I probably need to see both of them again to decide if I have a preference. Very good, then. Well, let's uh, take one more break. some new business. I've got kind of a mishmash here, Richard. Just going in order of my list here, Frankenstein 80. That is a movie I've always been curious about. I've never seen it, don't know a thing about it, but it is being released on Blu-ray from Cauldron. I pulled the trigger, did a blind buy and pre-ordered it. There is a bonus feature that intrigues me very much. It's called Little Frankenstein's History of Italian Frankenstein Films. It's a 40-minute bonus feature, which I think sounds pretty cool. A lot of other bonus features too. So that comes out in March. I don't know that I've ever got anything from Cauldron. You see it mentioned now and then, and I don't know, it's kind of maybe one that's always kind of hard to find because I think the official title is Frankenstein apostrophe 80. That could be, was it a Frankenstein made in 1980 or is it Frankenstein 1980? So I don't know that I really know what it is that I ordered, but I ordered it. Okay. We have a birthday, Mel Wells, the director of, and we didn't even say who Mel Wells was, what he's famous for. Did you? Did you say he was Mushnik in The Little Shop of Horrors? I think I missed that. No, really? Yeah. Yeah. He was born on February 17th, 1924. And you mentioned uh, an idea for a movie called Lady Dracula. There actually was a Lady Dracula that came out in 1978. It debuted in Paris on February 16th. Wonderful day. Wonderful day of the year. (laughs) And also a reason I could have or should have mentioned for choosing these two movies for this month is that Countess Dracula had its general release date in the United Kingdom on February 14th, 1971, Valentine's Day. Now, just a couple of miscellaneous things that I wanted to mention. I said I would talk about a uh, rigid free movie, and that would be The Haunting of Julia. So this is a movie with Mia Farrow that came out in the 70s. I've recently watched it on TCM, liked it quite a bit. It is getting an Australian disc with whatever region that is that's coming out in April. However, Shout Factory just announced The Haunting of Julia coming out April 18th in its ultra-high-definition version, 4K. So that is just odd to me that they're both being released at the same time in, I think, different versions. I don't think the Australian one is 4K. Haunting of Julia, good movie. 
One more thing. The Human Monster, a 1940 movie with Bela Lugosi, which was released in February of 1940, is coming out on Blu-ray from Classic Flicks. Their Silver Series number 22. And I went to the website and looked, and packaging isn't their strength, let me tell you. No, Classic Flicks is lower budget. Yeah, yeah, so I don't know if it's... I, I need to look more into it. That's a public domain flick for Star Wars. Yeah, I wonder if they've restored it or cleaned it up or anything. It's also known as Dark Eyes of London, I think. So oh, I have it from Sinister Cinema, but I have never watched it. I have it from Alpha Video. Anyone interested can go to classicflicks.com. That's classic F-L-I-X. And that really this time is all that I have. Oh, I lied. <laughs> One more thing, being February, being Valentine's Day, Fright Rags is doing a sort of new collection of items on their website for My Bloody Valentine, and they've got a really cool set of trading cards. Okay, that is it. Really, I promise I'll shut up. You working on anything you want to tell people about? Yeah, you know, January was a, a really dead month over at the blog. It didn't start off to be intentional, but post holidays, getting back to work, getting groove of things. It just kind of, it was a busy month at work, to be honest with you folks. And so I just kind of took a break from the blog, but I got back into it finally posting our January episode. I had intended to do some uh, other disaster flicks and it just uh, kind of time got away from me. But February, I do have something planned. I'm going to be covering the film's of Fu Manchu, uh, which I know going into it, there's some racial insensitivities in, in some of the films, and I'm going to be talking about that. These are going to be a series of articles rather than just doing things on individual films. Uh, I'm kind of visualizing it as a three-part article right now, focusing on some of the silent films. I just watched the two uh, Warner Olin films that Kino Lorber put out, and then the third film in that trilogy that they didn't have the rights to, called Daughter of the Dragon. We're, as we record this here in the next couple of days, we're going to be watching the Boris Karloff films, and then our film. I think we might do the chapter serial, but we're definitely going to watch the five Christopher Lee films, which I'm actually really looking for. I haven't seen those in probably 30 plus years. Uh, I have three of them on DVD and two on VHS. I don't know. Part of me, I could buy the DVDs for relatively cheap, but there's a part of me that I've owned these VHS tapes for a long time, but I've never actually watched the VHS tape. I bought them on eBay. I'm kind of thinking we'll watch them on VHS to go old school a little bit. I do have a VCR that's hooked up. It doesn't get used hardly ever. So, yeah, I'm going to be taking a look at, at Fu Manchu films, and I will probably even do or watch the fiendish plot of Dr. Fu Manchu with Peter Sellers. Fu Manchu is what's going to be. And plus, I'm going to be doing some old-time radio episodes of Fu Manchu will be showing up. I'll be posting up some links to the early episodes of the radio show. By the time this episode comes out, Fu Manchu will have already started. That's what I've got coming up in February. What about you? Do you want to tell people your theme name of the month that you decided not to use? I will do that here. Yes. I, I was trying to come up with a catchy name when I originally thought I would review each of the films individually like I do. And so I decided to do an article because I felt like that would give me a little bit more 
it would give me more ability to kind of expound upon some of the racial, you know, history behind it. But I was going to call it February. Yes, I know. That sounds horrible. Yeah, that's something I would have done without thinking. I'm I'm glad to see you gave it more consideration. I did give it more consideration. <laughs> but honestly, the only reason I didn't use that is because I'm doing articles. So I think if I had done the individual movies, I probably would have done it simply because I could put it in the headline and kind of catchy. I'm glad I didn't do that, though. But. Yeah. Well, to answer your question, it's business as usual for me. You've got new content on ClassicHorrors.club on Mondays and Fridays and still working through Red Tornado on DC Comics Guy on Wednesdays. I do kind of want to mention an unintentional theme that has risen at ClassicHorrors.club. In the mid-80s, and I would have just been out of college, there were a whole collection of horror movies that I saw because I was still a horror fan and just didn't care for. There was Chopping Mall. There was House, Invaders from Mars, Maximum Overdrive, Night of the Creeps, even Fright Night. I didn't realize it, but as I've revisited each of these, I really enjoy those movies. And I don't know if it's a change, you know, a shift in my sensibilities or I actually was having an online conversation with Steve Sullivan. It's, you know, sort of about that same time. You've got Back to the Future. You've got Steven Spielberg, E.T. Anything that was less than that seemed cheap. Looking back on it, that's kind of how I see it. But now there is some great stuff that I'm watching. So I had previously revisited Chopping Mall. Loved that. As we're recording the last Monday, I watched and wrote about Deadly Friend. One that I not only disliked when I saw it, but have held hatred for it for many, many years, and I don't know why. It was really fun. I'm going to be digging into some more of those movies. Invader Samars, I did recently watch. That will be this Monday, as we're recording, coming up. But the true test will be when I watch Return of the Living Dead. That is just something I never liked. And quite honestly, the experience I'm having right now, if I don't like it, I'm going to be really disappointed. I've always loved Return of the Living Dead. Um, Most people do. But I totally get where you're coming from on that. I saw that conversation and I was going to comment and then got sidetracked. In the 80s, my exposure to horror films was mostly classic stuff. I didn't go to see a lot of horror films in the theaters until I turned 17. My mom and dad wouldn't take me and I didn't have any older brothers or sisters to go to. I would watch stuff as they would appear on HBO. So like my exposure to Friday the 13th, Fun House, I remember watching. But there was a lot of stuff that I did miss. And in the la- in recent years, I've, I've started to catch these films for the first time. If I didn't catch them on you know, HBO back in the day, they were just something that kind of out of mind, out of place. Joe Bob, you know, has been kind of my gateway to some of these films from the 80s and 90s that I would hear other people talk about, especially 90s as a decade that I was married, raising kids, and my time for horror movies was a lot limited. And so I would always go with the classics. I'm enjoying discovering some of these films that Joe Bob will show. And Shudder is as well. As, as stuff pops up on Shudder, new stuff, right? I do a search. 
When did it come out? I just now realized it's not only that these movies and directors were competing with others, they were competing with themselves. And and these products were lesser. Wes Craven, for example, had done Nightmare on Elm Street, and then he does Deadly Friend. I mean, there's hardly any comparison there. And Toby Hooper had done Poltergeist, then he does Invaders from Mars. You know, their disappointments even compared to what they had done. So I don't know. It was an interesting time, and I am thoroughly enjoying revisiting those. Okie dokie. Anything else? That's all I've got. I think we're ready. We'll call the meeting to a close. We're going to go out with a song. And by the way, I didn't mention the. Oh, no, 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 we're not. What are we doing next time? I'm what say, do we have for people? I, I kind of threw that ball to you, and then you just dropped the ball. And yeah, like, right. yeah, we're done. Kind of like young, like uh, Lady Frankenstein, right? Like we're done, and Vinny. <laughs> next month on the show, ladies and gentlemen, we're kind of keeping with the Frankenstein Dracula theme, but we're kind of twisting it upside down and sideways, and we're gonna go a more comical route. A more intentional comical route. We've got a film that is, I think, a true classic and one that probably is not a true classic. Mm -hmm. We are going to be taking a look at My Uncle is a Vampire, 1959 comedy, which features Christopher Lee. And he plays Dracula, correct, in the movie? or He's never named as Dracula. Never named him. Okay, so he plays a vampire that resembles Dracula. Mm -hmm. If you want to play along at home, the movie has recently been released on Blu-ray. It is in the Eurocrypt of Christopher Lee Collection 2 box set, currently going for about $95 on Severn. I'm still holding out for some type of 50% off sale because I know as soon as I buy it the next week, they'll do a sale or it'll go out of print and I'll be grumbling about it. But the first... Gamera. Yeah, I know, Gamera. No, but the first box set still available. So I'm I'm hopeful that this one's not going to go out of print. I'm getting nervous, though. Anyway, it is available on YouTube, various versions. They all appear to be VHS-quality prints, and Christopher Lee's voice does appear to be dubbed. The second half of our double feature will be a... uh, I'm going to just go on a limb and say it's probably going to be the best of the two films. (laughs) The true classic, Young Frankenstein, 1974, from the legendary Mel Brooks, with a great cast, including Gene Wilder, Terry Garr, Cloris Leachman, uh, Madeline Kahn, Madeline Kahn, Peter Boyle. We're just going to be putting on the Ritz in next month's <laughs> episode. I had to go there. Yes. All right. Young Frankenstein, easy to find. You can get the Blu-ray for less than 15. It's also available today as we speak on HBO Max. Might not be tomorrow because Warner may decide to sell it off to Tubi, but it is at least available on HBO Max, so if you happen to have that service, check it out. It may be there, it may not. My Uncle is a Vampire, Young Frankenstein, next month's double feature, keeping with the Frankenstein and Dracula in name only lore, which actually kind of fits in, right? Because we didn't really have a Dracula this month, and we won't next month either. Horror comedies. We know I have an aversion to that, but spoiler alert, I have seen both of these before and I enjoy them both very, very much. And I don't know if I am wrong or not, but I think, Richard, the title of the first one is Uncle Was a Vampire. Okay. And maybe it's got multiple names. I'm not sure, but I've been known to type things wrong, so I could be wrong. Okay, now we close. 
I, I will just, I'll have one more thing to say. <laughs> I would be remiss if I didn't officially wish you a happy birthday. I know you downplay it, but ladies and gentlemen and, and boys and girls and everyone else out there in television viewing land, <laughs> Jeff's having a birthday this month. If you uh, would love to wish Jeff a, a happy birthday, please do so. It falls around the middle part of the month in a post-Valentine's Day. Happy birthday, my friend. And Thank you. May, may you have many, many more. I appreciate that. Thank you. We are going out, and what I had started to say, a very peppy song. This is a fun song. It is called Lady Frankenstein. It's by Matthew Sweet from his 2018 album, Tomorrow's Daughter. I think it's a great way to end what has been a fun episode. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. So thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks for giving us some feedback, for watching the YouTube video. We will see you in, gosh, about a month, right? I, I think so. Bye. Take care, everyone. Lady Frankenstein.